Please listen carefully. This is the House of Speakeasy podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Brought to you live every month from House of Speakeasy. We are your hosts. I'm Amanda Foreman. And I'm Lucas Whitman. In this episode of the podcast, writers Chris Abani, Steph Burt and Jeff Dyer consider the theme, When Strangers Meet. At the root of each of our performers' stories, there seem to be two basic questions. Just who is a stranger anyway? And what exactly can strangers tell us about ourselves? Chris Abani, novelist, poet and essayist, answers first. Good evening. Hi, thank you for having me. Can you hear me? I'm a big man, small voice. <laughs> I look like Barry White, but I don't have his voice. So um, I'm bringing you a greeting from South Africa. Uh, I say Salbona, and you say Sakona. Salbona? And we'll come back to that later. So immediately I think of strangers and meeting strangers. I think about airports, and I spend so much of my life in airports that when people ask me, where do you live? I say, language, melancholy, and airports. <laughs> so I thought... I start with airports. So airports are really wonderful because so much of my past has happened in airports and my future, I think, and my present continues to happen in airports. As a writer, I don't think writers expect to be recognized, uh, and sometimes you do, and it's very weird, but I wrote a book called Becoming Abigail about a young woman whose mother dies in childbirth, and she's given her mother's name Abigail, and she looks so much like her mother, that she starts to collect stories of her mother and she tattoos them on her body and so on and so forth. It's a small book. It's an extremely difficult book, very visceral. So I was in an airport in the Middle East. And airports in the Middle East are very intriguing because the gender divisions are quite rigorously enforced. And I was about to go into the men's room and I noticed uh, a woman completely covered except for her eyes was looking at me and walking towards me, which I thought was a bit bold and risky. So I went into the bathroom, and as I was leaving, she put out her arm and touched mine to stop me and said, becoming Abigail changed my life and disappeared. And so all I have is this voice and these eyes that continue to haunt me. Um, this whole idea about seeing and being seen, uh, that strangers somehow facilitate more than the people we know, because you would think that the people we know, we trust them enough, but we don't, so we're always hiding from them. Um, <laughs> but not so much with strangers. So I was born in Nigeria, just about the time the Biafran Civil War was starting, 1966. In fact, I was born eight months before the war. My mother was in labor for 72 hours. So as you can imagine, my father blames me for the war, among other things. So, so we're in this small town that's right by a river where the federal troops are landing, three miles from the house, and so my uncle comes and says, you guys have to leave, my father's not around, so my mother grabs all her documents, the other kids, and, and myself, and we, we start making our way uh, to join the refugee line. And we're working our way to the mission compound, which is only a few miles away. My father caught up with us on the road, and we were driving through this long line of refugees, and what was most striking is the number of people who had umbrellas with them in a tropical country, and you think, why is an umbrella so important? This is some kind of psychic protection. So we try to make our way out of the country, and it would have been a 200-mile drive from where we were to the airstrip where we would leave the country. Should have taken three hours. It took us two years to make this trip. 
So we're finally leaving Biafra. There's my mother, who's a white English woman, very English, from Buckinghamshire. This is how English my mother is. When she came to America for one of my book awards, we went to get uh, lunch at Malibu, because she said, I, I really want to see Malibu. And then she was promptly disappointed, because she said, it's like a CD Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting dinner, and Chad is our waiter. And Chad is like, uh, so like we have like the uh, wasabi like crusted like salmon. And we have the, when he goes on. <laughs> So I order, and when she, he leaves, my mother leans over and says, what language was he speaking? <laughs> I said, English, mom. And she said, oh, Americans, we gave them a language. I wish they would use it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, this, this white English woman has five black babies with her. And we leave, we get on a plane that's going to Sao Tome, and then we realize that the plane doesn't have enough wheels, so we kind of basically crash into the island of South America. Get another plane to Lisbon, where we're now waitlisted for a, a, a plane to England. And every day we go to the airport, my mother in her one faded African print dress and her flip-flops and five black children. Quite a sight in Lisbon. Um, and when we wouldn't get on the flight, we would troop around the city center, looking at all the sights, as my mother would say. And we would stay in this mission compound, this, this convent. And every night uh, after dinner, my mother would take off her only dress, turn it inside out, and she would wash it. And she would hang it from the balcony and stand there naked while it dried. And this image is always stuck in my mind. Not for Freudian reasons, but I'm sure that's part of it. <laughs> but about that pure and absolute melancholy of that moment. Um, and the, this notion of being inside out, of being completely naked, and I wondered what strangers made of her if they ever saw her on that balcony. A few days before we finally got on a plane to London, we were in the airport in Lisbon, and this woman walks over to my mother and says, you're right, dear? You look a bit bedraggled. So my mother tells her about the war. And so this woman, who doesn't know us, has been on a holiday in the Algarve with her family, promptly unpacks her entire suitcase, all her kids' clothes, all their toys, and she gives them to us and then goes away. Never see her again. Um, and so years later, when I was writing about my mother, she reminded me about this story, and I said to her, and then she started crying. My mother's very English, she doesn't cry. Uh, when I moved to America, <laughs> my mother, so, well, she was born during the war in England, and she, she never says, I love you, um, even though she does very much. So I tried to train my mother to say, I love you. So we'd talk on the phone, and I'd hang up, we're hanging up, I'd say, I love you, mom. She'd be like, all right then, dear. <laughs> and so my sister finally called me after a week and said, what the hell's wrong with you? Mom thinks you have cancer. <laughs> so this woman, uh, who doesn't really show emotions, is crying when she's telling me this story. And I asked her why. She never cried when she talked about the war. She never cried, even though she gave birth to my sister in a hospital that was being bombed. And she always said to me, it's the unexpected kindness of strangers that unstitches you. Horror doesn't unstitch you. It's kindness that tears you apart. And it's always stuck with me. And so my entire writing process actually comes out of that image of my mother washing an inside-out dress on a balcony in Lisbon. Because all of my characters are taken from the inside out. I never write about the external parts. So when you read my books, they're very difficult to read because and they're, they're very graphic and honest, but it's really because you get folded in to it. 
And I think it has to do with the idea of seeing, to actually just see something without any kind of looking away. And I think that's the highest form of love because when you're able to see and not look away, everything slows down and people are able to engage with the most difficult parts of their living in this trustful way, knowing that you're going to guide them through whatever darkness you're showing them into this transformative light. At least that's the plan of the books. And so this is really how I've always worked, um, to take people on these visceral journeys where this, the books they're reading aren't really about strangers living strange and exotic lives, but about people who could be them. And this is really the thing that I've come to understand, that the only time I meet a stranger is when I confront myself. Anytime I meet new people, they're not strangers. And if you ask uh, at any Midwestern airport, there are lots of white women who know me because I still chase them around the airport, trying to buy them coffees and sugar <laughs> and sugared candies to make up for the kindness of this woman in Portugal who just gave us everything she owned. And I think that's beautiful. So that brings us back to the initial greeting that I had for you, Saobana. Saobana means, I see you. Sakona means, I am here. To see is to call people into presence. And when you call people into presence, they will be there, always, to reflect back at you, your essential humanity. This is a gift that strangers give us, the chance to see ourselves unfettered and as beautiful as we really are. Thank you. Our next speaker has been and is on a long journey. Steph Burt is a poet, a critic, a Harvard professor. And they, as Steph likes to be called, has been exploring more than most of us could ever imagine what it means to be the person that they should be. As Steph has put it in their own writing, it seems to me that poetry in general lets you create a voice that is you and not you. You but like you. You as someone else. And that's true for the writer and also for the reader. It's a great honor to be able to introduce Steph Burt to you tonight. Steph. So when I accepted this invitation, I was very flattered, and I thought about what it means to tell a story about meetings with strangers, and I was sort of nervous because telling a story about a meeting with a stranger meant telling a story about what happened to me in my one body once in one kind of narrative because that's what a story, especially a, a nonfiction story, is. And one of the reasons that I like poetry so much, one of the reasons I've devoted so much of my energy to either writing poetry or helping people read poetry that I didn't write 
is that poetry gives you a way to meet strangers, a way to present yourself to strangers and to enter into the consciousness of other people, other writers, other characters that is not about having one story, one narrative, and one body. It's about meeting people through their words instead of through their bodies and faces. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe I can tell a story about that, about the way that poetry works and doesn't work to introduce you to strangers and about the difference between meeting someone through their poetry and actually meeting someone you haven't met before. And there are a lot of reasons why I like that view of poetry. Other critics have other views and other reasons for liking it. There are a lot of reasons I like it, but one is that, uh, as you've just heard, uh, I have more than one gender. I often feel like a girl inside. I sometimes wish I were, but feel like I'm not. Um, it's, it's a thing. Um, I certainly identify as transgender. I go by Steph now by choice, although People call me other names sometimes, and that's okay with me, and uh, I'm lucky to be able to be really out about that and to be able to write about it and present as the person I want to be a lot of the time. That was not always the case in the 90s. Um, in the early 90s, when I was starting to figure this stuff out, there were models for what a trans person was like, and it, I felt like none of them applied to me. Uh, and, you know, I wore dresses to parties and I wrote various poems with various personae. And then I kind of got a great academic job, my first professor job, and I moved to Minnesota. And I didn't get to go to the parties I was going to because I lived in Minnesota. <laughs> you know, I went to, you know, I had other friends. Minnesota's a great place to live. We had a great social group. Uh, but it wasn't quite as queer and it wasn't quite as stay out all night. Uh, as my family friends in the 90s had been, and I thought, you know, maybe I don't need to express this quite as much. Maybe I can put my uh, girl self in the fridge for a bit and be a grown-up and do other things. And I did, and it was really great for a while. Um, and I got a great deal of stability and security, and we started a family, uh, and it was fine for a while. And then around about... 2011, it wasn't fine anymore. Um, and I decided to start writing about my gender identity and to start presenting myself uh, as who I am uh, and started going to conventions and meetings and events where I would meet strangers who were out as trans in various uh, ways of being trans and got from helpful strangers things like makeup tips, which I still value, and tips on you know how to dress better for the body that I have and the body I want to have, which I'm still collecting, so thank you. Um, and uh, a whole bunch of writings by me or about me came out that had to do with, uh, pun I guess intended, my coming out. There was, uh, for instance, a piece in the New York Times in 2012 by the terrific journalist Mark Oppenheimer uh, that... Uh, profiled me as poetry's cross-dressing kingmaker. That, that was the subhead. And, you know, we have some problems with cross-dressing as a label because it implies it's all about clothes. It's not. It's about who I am. Um, uh, and it implies that it's a fetish, which I guess for some people it is, but that's not me. Uh, but it's not totally wrong. Um, and Kingmaker seems uh, so flattering as to be inaccurate, but I do write book reviews that apparently some people care about, uh, and they're certainly about poetry. So there I was in the New York Times magazine in 2012 as Poetry's Cross-Dressing Kingmaker, and I liked the attention. It was very flattering, uh, and it meant that after that piece came out, I would do a literary event, um, 
And uh, people would not be shocked or go to a party and people who knew me as a poet and critic would not be uh, stunned or confused if I showed up at, you know, in a dress with makeup feeling the way that I feel inside. And I still live with two genders. I, I'm, I present in different ways in different places, but nothing's a secret anymore. And that's really great. It's really great not to have secrets about who I am. And shortly after I finished coming out to the literary world as Poetry's Cross-Dressing Kingmaker, I had a set of poems in a very important anthology called Troubling the Line, uh, edited by Trace Peterson and T.C. Tallbearer, whose work I encourage you to read. Uh, and that great big orange and black book uh, is apparently the first anthology of trans and genderqueer poetry. Uh, and I was very happy to be included in that. And a little after that came out, I had my most recent full-length book of poems, uh, which is called Belmont, after the terrific little town outside Boston where we live. Uh, and most of those poems had been written a little bit earlier, and it's got a whole bunch of stuff in it, including poems about gender and Avril Lavigne and Kermit the Frog and a talking stapler. Um, but it's mostly a book about suburban parenthood, about living in a privileged town and figuring out what to do when your kids get boo-boos and being a grown-up. So uh, that was Belmont. That, was, that came out in 2013. And this was the first of the books of my own poetry that I'd written that really ended up with something like a book tour. And I was a little ambivalent about a book tour because I, I have, my kids are 6 and 10 now. Um, at the time, uh, if you can do the math, that meant that they were, what, 3 and 7. And it was the longest I'd been away from my 3-year-old, but... My wife and I talked about whether to do this, and the answer was yes, go do this. Go visit some colleges and bookstores in another part of the country and see if they want to read your book. It was very flattering. It was a little uncomfortable, but mostly it was exciting. And so I got on a plane uh, after Belmont came out and did a book tour of the Pacific Northwest. And the first stop, the first place I met some strangers, uh, was the Open Book Bookstore, which is one of the few stores in the country that's all poetry in Seattle. Long, brightly lit, white, uh, beautifully curated space. And I, uh, I wasn't wearing this dress, but I had a black dress I had bought for the occasion and... Uh, at the time, I was doing wigs. I do hats and not wigs right now. Uh, but I had this sort of black wig that gave me long hair that I don't really have naturally. And I spent quite a while getting ready to do this poetry reading, and it went pretty well. And the few dozen people who'd come to hear me read poetry who looked like they went to poetry readings all the time, um, uh, who seemed happy with it, and some of them even bought my book, uh, and some of them bought other people's books and chapbooks, which was exciting. I felt I was supporting the bookstore. Um, and two uh, ladies who were uh, probably past retirement age, who had been sort of in the back, came up to me at the end of the reading uh, and said, I don't know if you remember us, uh, one of them said, but um, I'm Diane and, and this is Connie. And Diane and Connie had been my fifth grade homeroom teacher and my third grade science teacher. And um, I was not a terribly happy or fun kid to teach, uh, I think in third, fourth, fifth grade, I wanted to be a girl and I didn't tell anyone and I just had trouble talking to other kids and I just wanted to sort of make up uh, chemistry problems for myself all the time when I wasn't uh, trying to be a science fiction writer. And Connie, the third grade science teacher, was great about this and I have uh, wonderful memories of her giving me periodic table things. Um, and sort of fossil guides. And uh, Diane uh, remembered, and I hadn't remembered this at all, that for most of fifth grade, I had uh, one shoe on her desk. 
and I would go around uh, shoeless because I was constantly losing pens and pencils and constantly saying, can I borrow a pen? Uh, and the only way she would lend me pens after a while would be if I gave up my shoe to her so I wouldn't run off with yet more pens that belonged to the school. So this was a meeting, and, and uh, Connie and Diane had moved across the country uh, from D.C. to Washington State for the outdoors and saw my name in, I guess, the local Alterna Weekly or the Seattle Times and just said, why don't we go and see them? So that's a meeting with strangers where I turned out not to be the stranger at all, and it established for me how continuous I still was with the person I'd been, even though I'd gone through all of these changes. I woke up the next day in the hotel in Seattle, and I was going to read in Bellingham, Washington uh, that night at Western Washington University. And at the time, uh, it took me quite a while to do my makeup and to figure out how to sort of present myself as a girl or as, as a woman. And I thought, do I really want to do this uh, just to walk around Seattle and then get in a car? Can I change later? Is it really worth it? And I decided it wasn't. So I got up and I threw on a T-shirt and jeans and went to the Seattle Art Museum, which I recommend, and went thrifting on Seattle's Capitol Hill. And it takes me quite a while to go shopping because I don't trust my tastes. Uh, it's, it's often said more than once that people with my kind of life story often dress wildly too young for ourselves uh, and end up sort of accidentally looking like Hannah Montana. Um, uh, unless we check with their people who want to look like Hannah Montana but, or Avril Lavigne, uh, but it's hard to pull off, right? Um, so I take a long time thrifting uh, or shopping when I'm by myself because I second-guess myself, and I must have spent an hour and a half in the Goodwills and the Buffalo Exchanges of Seattle's Capitol Hill, and I came away with my favorite pair of gray jeans. Uh, they're still my favorite pair, the guest jeans, the kind that were really cool in fifth grade. Um, and I realized after I'd made my purchase, I was super late, for Bellingham. So I got in the car, the rented blue Honda, and just booked it up I-5. So I got to Bellingham and got into the auditorium, and there were the students, a few dozen students. And I was happy to see them, but they looked a little bit disappointed to see me, or at least that was the vibe I got. That was what I thought. And I was thinking, how can they be disappointed before I've even started to read? And this may be my take on them based on what I was about to learn. But it was the way that the vibe in the room seemed. And if you're a lecturer or a performer, you may have seen this yourself. They just, and I was thinking, why are they disappointed? And then I saw what books they were carrying. And it turned out that the students who were reading my work, who were, which was one of the reasons that they had bothered to bring me across the country to read at Western Washington University, they weren't necessarily reading Belmont, my new book about suburban parenthood. They were reading Troubling the Line, the first anthology of trans and gender queer poetry. And they had hoped and expected to meet poetry's cross-dressing kingmaker. And... Uh, I had shown up, and I was just in a T-shirt and jeans, having just gotten out of the car. And I felt I had let them down. Uh, and I felt better after the reading and talk and Q&A, and uh, I met and talked to some of the students, and we talked about uh, how I present myself and how we all present ourselves differently in different spaces. But the lesson I got from, from that was... Uh, really that you can write poems 
in which you can have all sorts of faces and characters. You can write a poem as a stapler, as a frog, as a girl, as a woman, as a boy, as a man, as a talking block of ice. And I've done all those things. But if you're going to meet strangers in person, you can only be one person at one time. Thanks. You've been listening to House of Speakeasies, seriously entertaining podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Now, back to the show. And our next and final speaker tonight is a man of such hard-to-define books that we can only describe them as brilliant. He is Jeff Dyer the author of a book about jazz, a book about photography, a book about not writing a book about D.H. Lawrence, which is the best book on D.H. Lawrence you could ever read. And his new collection is a collection of sort of travel essays, just for the sake of brevity, called White Sands. And for a man who spends a good amount of his time in public places through travel, he has this word of, words of warning for writers out there. Don't write in public places. It should be done only in private, like any other lavatorial activity. <laughs> Jeff Dyer. Um, uh, to me, the strange thing about the idea of the stranger is how easily we forget its necessary connection with the word strange. Uh, if you like, it's become estranged from any notion of strangeness. Uh, possibly this is because the stranger has become such a familiar, entirely unstrange staple of our culture. You know, uh, the stranger rides or drives into town, and we can tell right away that he's a stranger. In fact, he's instantly recognisable as such, encoded in strangeness up to his eyeballs, He's very often played by an actor whose face is known to millions. <laughs> the expression, don't be a stranger, is sort of oxymoronic uh, in that it asks someone not to be that which, by virtue of the phrase, uh, means that he, he or she is anything but. It's also a very intimate, almost flirtatious form of parting. Uh, moving over to music, just in case we don't get the point first time around, the final lines of Leonard Cohen's lovely, beautiful stranger song, I told you when I came I was a stranger, they're repeated four times at the end, just to make sure that that idea of strangeness is thoroughly embossed on the known. It was very funny and quite telling in London in the 1980s when there were two stranges, that's is, is, not ers, uh, who became impresarios or hosts of London nightclubs. There was Steve Strange who ran Blitz and Richard Strange over at Cabaret Futura. So the idea of the strange became doubly familiar to everyone who was part of the sort of underground scene as they vied with each other for that thing, which is, of course, the opposite of strangeness, that is to say, familiarity and acclaim. Uh, they, were out, they were out to try to get hold of everything that would sort of de-strange them. I wonder what happened when they bumped into each other as strangers on a train. <laughs> A quick-witted audience. Uh, Albert Camus' L'Etranger was first translated into English as The Outsider. That's how I came to know it. But then in the 1980s, it was translated 
um, into, into sort of American English as the stranger. Uh, and I must say, when I was in Algeria, I was on a sort of, uh, I, was, I was so crazy about Camus, and I was on a, on a journey which the editors of Esquire, who I was writing uh, for, they predictably enough called it, they said I was on an existential journey. Anyway, when I checked into a little pensione with uh, virtually nobody there except this little boy, I got a great, a great sort of charge of excitement, of recognition when he called out, Mama, il y a un étranger là. <laughs> so I had become the stranger. So yeah, the stranger is, of course, also a foreigner. Or, as Robert Heinlein put it in, Heinlein put it in his 1961 novel, Stranger in a Strange Land, uh, the, the, there's something, again, there's a homely side to this. Uh, doubly so in that, first off, Heinlein had the idea for doing a version of Kipling's Jungle Book but where the main character would be not raised by animals, but by Martians before coming to Earth. So it harked back to Kipling. On the, that's the first reason. The second reason it's quite a homely idea is because, looking forward, this idea of the Martian coming to Earth has, of course, become one of the absolute staples of earthly culture, from either the Martian poetry school of Craig Rain, in which ordinary things look, as it were, identifiably strange. You know, you'll remember uh, some of the great bits of, of Martian poetry where, you know, you'll remember that, um, what is it, dogs piss like hurdlers and shit like weightlifters. <laughs> the strange is rendered familiar and the familiar is rendered strange. Uh, and then there's the other sort of, I mean, the sort of ultimate example of this, uh, you know, David Bowie, late of this parish, who famously fell to earth in Nick Rogue's film of that name. It's perhaps the ultimate example of the stranger no one on earth could fail to recognize. You know, there he is. He, he turns up, you know, he shacks up with that woman, and you think, God, surely at some point she's going to realize not that he's a Martian, but that he's David Bowie. <laughs> So to repeat, it's quite a cosy idea, this notion of the stranger. To say, I'm a stranger here myself, is to sort of wrap oneself in a, to swaddle oneself in a much-worn blanket uh, that's grown rather soft with use. I'll change direction slightly now. And I want to quote, I want to go back to 1922 and quote D.H. Lawrence uh, when he's in New Mexico and he writes to E.M. Forster, and says, I feel a great stranger, but have got used to that, I, that feeling and prefer it to feeling homely. After all, one is a stranger, nowhere so hopelessly as at home. That was in 1922, but in 1925, three years later, he makes a crucial inversion. He says, one can no longer say, I'm a stranger everywhere, only everywhere I'm at home. Now, Lawrence is talking, obviously, about geography, about places, but it seems to me that this idea can usefully be extended to the notion of form. For any writer growing up, the novel is the home uh, that we become accustomed to and familiar with. We're aware of its conventions and habits. And speaking personally for me, my book about D.H. Lawrence, Out of Sheer Rage, was an important step away from this cosy homeland of the novel without succumbing to any lingering symptoms of homesickness 
or nostalgia. It was a way, if you like, of being at home in the idea of literary estrangement. So the question becomes, I think, where can one make a home in writing? I mean, don't we want books that are strange? Well, in a sense, if you're a publisher, sort of definitely not. <laughs> Uh, and as readers as well, we like to know where we stand. Uh, you know, it's tempting in a way to judge books by how closely they resemble other books that we like. You know, the, 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 you know, the less strange the better. On an individual basis as well, I think the ideal is for a writer to keep coming up with different iterations, different versions of a previous book. You'd have thought the idea might have been to write something that gained recognition for uh, the way that it didn't resemble anything else. Uh, to that extent, it was really gratifying for me when somebody in the NYRB wrote that I had produced one of the strangest bodies of work in contemporary letters. Um, I persuaded myself that that was a compliment. I was dropped my, by my publisher after that was published. Um, as a sidebar, I'd add as well that it's actually very common for highly derivative writers to be labelled as original. And that's no surprise, really, because their originality is recognised precisely because it's been seen and done before. That's what it means to recognise something. And so, just as strange becomes ordinary, so that which is quite ordinary garners praise a reputation for being strange. There's a story in my new book, it's the title story, it's called White Sands, and it's about picking up a hitchhiker. And, um, you know, uh, what happens in that story is we pick up this hitchhiker, he's, we're all getting on really well, and then we see a sign saying, notice, do not pick up hitchhikers, detention facilities in area. And that, that, that changes everything. But um, it's a shame in a way, because, I mean, uh, I did a load of hitchhiking when I was younger. It's one of the great ways to, to, to sort of to, to meet other people. It's a great and very cheap way to travel. And because I did so much of it, my wife and I are really keen to get our, uh, to, to, as it were, get our round in now. We're always on the lookout for hitchhikers. There are virtually none. It's sort of, you know, it's kind of died died out. And that's a, that's a that's a real shame, I think, because it really illustrates one of the, the great truths of travel, which is just how little we have to fear from strangers. I mean, you know, I went to Sunday school for a very short time um, uh, as a boy, and, you know, going to the sort of Church of England Sunday school, I feel it was my first really, really deep immersion in the idea of boredom. It was all so, all these <laughs> biblical stories were so boring, but... You know, there is no story in the Bible lovelier than that of the Good Samaritan, I think. And, yeah, that is one of the lessons of travel, how little we have to fear from one another. Generally speaking, most people have no more intention of harming you than you have of harming them. Although, obviously, at certain times, certain places, Fallujah and Grozny, are best avoided. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons why there was such an outcry uh, when during the London riot, the, in, the riots in England in 2011, there was that poor boy from Malaysia, he was visiting England, and he got punched in the face as he was cycling along, had his jaw broken, and that was sort of horrible enough. And then he was helped by two apparent good Samaritans, but actually they weren't helping him, they were helping themselves to the context, uh, to the context of, 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 his, of his rucksack. 
and it was there was a huge outcry about this, uh, and it was truly terrible, irrespective of how poor in, or disenfranchised the perpetrators were. We feel that if you're a stranger, if you're lost and powerless, you should be entitled, actually, to some extra degree of protection from your hosts. Anyway, the opposite of this idea of locals only, of treating strangers with great kindness, is beautifully, of course, expressed by Whitman in the Song of Myself when the runaway slave comes to his house and Whitman goes outside, and I quote, and sat on a log and led him in and assured him and brought water and filled a tub for his sweated body and bruised feet and gave him a room that entered from my own and gave him some coarse, clean clothes and remember perfectly well his revolving eyes and his awkwardness and remember putting plasters on the galls of his neck and ankles. He stayed with me a week before he was recuperated and passed north. I sat him next to me at my table. My firelock leaned in the corner. I think it's, wor you know, it's, it's worth remembering that at that point in history, the slave was considered not just a stranger, but not human at all, merely a beast of burden. And I think perhaps one of the general drifts of our history in, of the, over the past century and a half or so has been to see has been that we now see how much we have in common not just with other humans but with other actual animals and of course uh, you know uh, these animals it, it's the idea doesn't seem strange to us now but it turns out they were our ancestors uh, and of course we have Darwin to thank for this and Sebastio Salgado, the photographer, de uh, describes what for me is the ultimate meeting with a stranger when partly under the inspiration of Darwin's voyage of the beagle, he, go he visits the Galapagos and there he sees a giant turtle uh, which he reminds us this creature can live up to 200 years. And to photograph it, he goes down on his knees to its level and looks, at his, looks into this turtle's eyes and gradually the turtle becomes uh, sort of used to him. Uh, uh, and this is, this is what he, I mean Sal Salgado I mean, not the turtle, this is what he goes on to say about this encounter. He says, when you're in front of a creature of that age, you're facing real authority with all those wrinkles, all that knowledge. When Darwin went there, that turtle would already have been an adult. Maybe it saw Darwin. Who knows? So I love this idea that, in a sense, this strangest of creatures, with whom we could hardly have less in common, turns out not to be a stranger at all. He turns out to be a sort of acquaintance, almost a friend of a friend. It's like Salgado is saying, oh, you know, I, 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 sort, of, I sort of knew Charles Darwin. You know, and I've got an invitation card from him in the shape of the voyage of the Beagle. Anyway, that's almost the image I want to leave you with, but actually the final thing that I want to, to remind you of is this wonderful sign that I saw in a camp at Burning Man, and it read very simply, strangers welcome, stranger the better. <laughs> Thank you very much. Jeff Dyer on stage for House of Speakeasies when strangers meet. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks to all of our performers, the wonderful Chris Aparney, the amazing Stephen Burt, and once again, the lovely, funny Jeff Dyer. And do come back next time for more writers, more stories, and a brand new theme for our storytellers to riff on. To learn more about House of Speakeasy and what we do as a nonprofit, visit our website, houseofspeakeasy.org. 
And if you're in the New York area, please join us at one of our live shows at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. I'm Amanda Foreman. And I'm Lucas Whitman. And thank you for listening. <laughs>